You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. And let's take out our Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth. So we are in the middle of our Hall of Fame series, and I'm very excited this morning to share with you about our next woman, Ruth. So when I was around 10 years old, my grandma McRae on my mom's side took a trip to Ireland to go visit our relatives. And I remember when she returned, I was mesmerized by her experiences and her stories, so much so that it instilled in me a dream to go to Ireland someday and to see the land, to meet the people, to meet my people, and to walk up into the gorgeous, wild, green hills where my great-grandfather's house still stands today. And Brian and I were able to take this trip back in 2005. And as we visited with my relatives, I noticed that in their homes, they would have their family genealogy on their walls, displayed as art. Oh, this is my great-grandfather's house, by the way. And that's me (laughs) in the background. So in their wall, on their walls, they would have the genealogy displayed as artwork in their homes, in their living rooms. And I often wondered why, why that was. Perhaps it was a sense of, of pride, of knowing where they came from, maybe a sense of belonging, maybe a deep appreciation of those who have gone before them and the choices that they made, and maybe to reflect on God's faithfulness through the generations. And sometimes our genealogy trees show, shows one tree, and sometimes it shows one tree that's been intersected by another tree. And the message is still the same, that your specific life, your specific life and what you do with your life matters to God. And it impacts those around you. So we can find this theme wrapped up in the book of Ruth. So let's dive in because we got a lot of ground to cover. But I'm excited to do that with you this morning. So the book of Ruth, just some context to set it up. So the author of the book of Ruth is actually unknown. We don't even have a really good guess. Isn't that mysterious? But I know it comes as a breath of fresh air coming off the heels of Judges. Right? So even more intriguing is that the book of Ruth is written from a woman's perspective. This is very rare, very intriguing. And the writing style is written in a narrative form and an idle form, which means it uses common, ordinary life to tell a story. And in this case, it's about real, historical people who lived. And the setting of the story does take place in the time of Judges. So do you remember how Pastor James last week talked about the theme of Judges and how it was this unhealthy marigold round of misery that the Israelites were relating to God in this very unhealthy way. 
this is the setting in which the book of Ruth takes place. And you'll see this in the very first verse. The book of Ruth is also a love story between a man and a woman, but it's also, and we can't miss this, a greater symbolic expression of a greater covenant love between God and his beloved people. So, of course, much of my research involves the ESV and the NIV study notes, which I love, but in this particular book, I really enjoyed a really exhaustive commentary by a professor named Robert Hubbard, Jr., and so I'll be quoting his work a lot this morning because it's really rich. Okay, so let's get to our text. Let me recap the beginning of chapter 1 because I can't go through all the verses. So in chapter 1, in just five quick verses, here's what goes down. There's a great famine occurring, right? And this is, again, that, that theme within Judges where God is, is disciplining the Israelites. So there's a famine in the land of Judah. And here's a map of that. So everywhere that you see green, there would have been a great famine for the Israelites. They had no food. They were hungry. So a husband named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, travel from Bethlehem, that's where they were living, to the land of Moab in order to survive. So the red line on the map is their journey. So this is quite a ways. When they get to Moab, which, by the way, is a pagan country historically considered to be at odds with the Israelites. So the husband, Elimelech, dies. The author gives no reason. It's just sudden. Elimelech dies. And then his two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And after 10 years, these two couples have no children, and the husbands die. No reason, again, they're just, they're gone. So the mother, Naomi, and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are all traumatically widowed, and their family lineage, their genealogy, is on the verge of extinction due to having no children among them. And they are devastated and empty. And in verse 6, what happens is Naomi hears. Naomi hears that the Lord has come to help save his people and provides food for them. So she begins the journey of leaving Moab and returning back home with her two daughters-in-law. And on the way, she begins to really think through this plan, and she stops, and she looks at her daughters. So let's read verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in a home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. So these were the first two... These were the first words that Naomi is recorded to speak, and they are ones of blessing. Please go back. Please go back to your family, your Moabite heritage, and may the Lord show you kindness. So Hubbard notes in his book, 
Naomi's prayer was more than a casual goodbye, God bless you. Rather, she was thereby formally freed the women from any future responsibility toward her. More important, she will not be in a position in the future to do them hesed. She asked God to do it for her. So what is hesed? What is that? Hesed is kindness. It is loyalty. It's reliability. And it's compassion. Hesed is the type of kindness and loyalty that is weighty. It usually goes above and beyond the ordinary. And it would not have been considered necessarily expected of the Israelites, but the greatest Jewish ideal of how they should treat one another. Hesed. So how do the daughters respond to Naomi and her request? They weep. They weep out of a deep devotion and affection towards their mother-in-law. What a beautiful picture. And I, uh, and I also wonder if it maybe triggered a response in being confronted with yet another potential traumatic loss for them. She's all. She's all they have left. And she's saying, I'm going to go now. So I think it was weighty. I think there was a lot there. So seeing how upset her daughters were, Naomi then gives a dramatic rhetorical argument to like set up her reasoning. So let's read that in verse 12. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there were still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand is against me. So here you see Naomi's words actually reveal, they reveal that she is genuinely looking out for the best interest of her daughters long-term, long-term. She wants them to stay with their their Moabite heritage and have children and have another husband. She truly is releasing them. And then her reasoning also gives us the first glimpse of how she has internalized her grief. The Lord's hand has turned against me. And sometimes, I think in the midst of great loss, we can and we do desperately look for answers. Why did this happen? What could I have done? And who's to blame? And Naomi's posture, her grief posture, at least at this point, was that the Lord was to blame and it was personal against her. This is how she's internalizing her grief. So how do the daughters respond this time to Naomi's reasoning? Well, they weep even more. They weep even more. And this time, Orpah says, okay, I will obey you, mother, and I will go back. I'll go back to Moab. And even in the midst of this, Naomi tries to use some peer pressure with Ruth. Like, see what your sister is doing? Please go, go do the same. She's making the right choice. And here's how Ruth responds. She clings to her mother, 
And let's read in verse 16. And Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. (sighs) Wow. This is pretty intense. And these are the first words recorded by Ruth. And she responds to Naomi with the most extraordinary hesed. Hesed. Such kindness. Such loyalty and reliability. She's promising reliability and compassion. And in essence, she is expressing to mother, mother Naomi, do not push me away. Do not push me away. I see your grief, and I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it. I'm grieving with you, and I commit myself fully to you, to your people, and to your God, the God of Israel. Isn't that powerful? A powerful response of Hesed. I also wonder if this sounds even a little bit familiar, an outsider, a non-Israelite woman wanting to leave her pagan hometown and shows an extraordinary act of kindness to an Israelite and commits her life to the God of Israel. Does that sound like our dear friend Rahab from a few weeks ago? (laughs) It's an interesting connection. So the chapter ends with this mother-daughter duo entering Naomi's hometown, where Naomi's friends are overjoyed to see her. Overjoyed to see her, but she can't receive their welcome. She can't receive it, and instead she expresses the fullness of her grief by changing her name to Mara, which means bitter. Bitter, because she believes the Lord has made her life bitter, and empty. And sometimes, if we were to just take a real superficial look at Naomi, we might be tempted to think she's being a bit dramatic, changing her name. But it's important that we remember, and we must remember, this woman has experienced complete devastation. So through this study, I realized that any and every single emotion that this wife and mother would have felt would have been legitimate. And beneath her anguish was longing, longing to be cared for, to have respite, to have her family back to find belonging in them again, to pass on a legacy. And if we remember from verse 6, even in her grief, her ear, her ear was turned 
toward the Lord. And she was moved towards the provision the Lord was offering back home. So when you look at this picture of Ruth and Naomi, who are you drawn to so far in the story? Where does your heart move towards these two women? So our lesson from chapter 1 is when grief shows up around you, when grief shows up, stay loyal. What would it look like for you to show unexpected kindness and enter into someone else's grief and not be afraid of it? Stay loyal. Go the journey with them. And yes, it's uncomfortable. It really is but we need each other. So let's move into chapter 2, Ruth and Boaz in the grain field. So let's read chapter 2. We'll start in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, so now they're in Bethlehem, of course, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi says to her, go ahead, my daughter, So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So right away we see that Ruth is already making good on her promise to Naomi. She initiates the first move. She shows her resilience because she's still in the midst of grief. And resolve to follow through, to provide for Naomi and herself. And some background, under the Jewish law, grain field owners were to care and provide for the poor, widowed, and orphans. And they would do this by allowing them to gather standing grain in the corners or in the borders of their field. And they were allowed to pick up dropped stalks that the harvesters accidentally dropped or left behind because the harvesters were not supposed to go back on their work. It was a way to care for and provide for their whole community. I love that. So these harvesters in Boaz Field, they were most likely paid workers. They had an arrangement with Boaz. So these weren't slave workers. Okay? So let's continue reading. Verse 4 through 9. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained there from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and drink. From the water jars, the men have filled. So the way in which Ruth goes about to glean in a field 
as the overseer reports, gives us another look into Ruth's character. So let me read this quote. Her statement revealed a vulnerable foreigner who demonstrated remarkable courage, yet respectful restraint. She would not glean with presumption, written law or not, but with humility. She was waiting to get permission. And I think that moves Boaz. When Boaz heard this, he replies with kindness, Ruth, please stay here. Work for the woman that work for me. So he includes her into his harvester group versus the widow and orphan group that only get the corners. And you'll be safe here. Please stay hydrated in this heat while you work. So it's an interesting reflection. His workers would have treated her as if she belonged with them because he said so. Here, she stepped from outside of Israel as a foreigner to the outer edge of the inner circle. I think what a beautiful picture of inclusion and inviting her in, someone who didn't belong, and he says, you belong here, I will take care of you. And Ruth's response, verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I mean, she was just overwhelmed that finally she has found favor. This was huge. And in verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So because of what he heard about Ruth and her hesed toward Naomi, that is what deeply moves Boaz to respond with his own kindness. Inviting an outsider, a foreigner, to be included with his harvesters. Now let's think, why would kindness mean so much to Boaz? Why would a man be so moved by an expression of kindness? Remember a few weeks ago when I briefly mentioned that Boaz is the son of Rahab. So let's connect these pieces. Boaz's literal life would not exist had his mother, an outsider, not extended kindness to two Israelite spies. The value and ethic of living out hesed towards God's people has literally been branded on the very DNA of Boaz. This is what he's been raised with. He would have known this story. He would have known the heritage of his parents and how critical it was how critical kindness was. So what moves him the most is Ruth's loyalty and kindness, and he responds equally. And then he leaves her with a beautiful prayer and a blessing. May God reward you for the hesed you have shown. Isn't that amazing? So the story continues, verse 14. 
At mealtime, Boaz says to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. And she ate all that she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley and she gathered it and it amounted to an ephah. So again, Boaz continuing to include her and is it just me? Or has this man included a sixth love language called food? <laughs> I mean, he is, he's clearly drawn to her and her character and is wooing her through food. Ruth, come, glean, glean your grain in my field. Sit down, have some bread, dip it in some wine, have some grain, all that you want. Have, take the leftovers and men, be sure to drop some extras in her field. Yeah, he, he is, uh, he's in trouble. He is smitten. So as Ruth goes back to work, Boaz goes above and beyond giving Ruth gleaning privileges that were not even customary for his women workers. So he, again, is going above and beyond and asking the men to give her special provision. So Ruth... As we're learning, she does not waste an opportunity. And by the end of the day, she has about an ephah worth of barley. So how much is that? An ephah would have weighed 29 pounds of barley. So how do we gauge that? Well, the ration of a male worker rarely exceeded one to two pounds a day. So this meant that Ruth collected the equivalent of at least a half a month's wages in one day. And this is a startling quantity of grain testified both to Boaz's generosity and to Ruth's industry. She's like, okay, this is my moment, and I'm going to glean <laughs> because we are starving. We need food, and I'm going to help my mother. Isn't this powerful? So to recap, so Ruth brings this very large sack of harvested barley home. And her leftover grain, her roasted grain from lunch, by the way, to Naomi, and she begins to recount the extraordinary favor that's been shown to her through Boaz. And here is how Naomi responds. Verse 20. The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not, he, meaning God, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead and she added, that man is our close relative, and he is one of our guardian redeemers. This right here is one of my favorite verses of the entire book. I can almost feel the relief and the restoration that has occurred between Naomi and the Lord. The confirmation that he still cares about her, that he sees her as the kindness shown through Boaz pierces right into 
her grief. She doesn't reject it. She isn't sarcastic. She doesn't dismiss it. She receives the Father's kindness through Boaz and allows it to comfort her to the point where she is once again able to praise God. I call this the ampersand moment. The ampersand moment. The ampersand is that symbol in our English language that means and or both. And spiritually speaking, it's when we allow ourselves to open-handedly hold and feel our grief because it's really that important. It's important spiritual work between you and the Lord. And without diminishing the pain and without ignoring it, we bring it forward. And while we hold it out, our other hand with a willingness to receive comfort and healing and kindness from the Lord. It's a both and. Because oh, how he is jealous for our restoration, friends. He is jealous for this. To bring it together. And here's Naomi. Here's Naomi. She exemplifies a believer who surrenders unanswered, bitter questions about what has happened. And she embraces the certainty of God's blessed presence and seizes the present opportunity to his glory. Excuse me. This was a critical moment It doesn't imply that her grief just went away. It is still with her. Rather, in this moment, she chooses to surrender these questions. She loosens her grip just enough so that she can receive hope. So that she can receive hope and what God wants to give her in this moment. And I view this as a critical healing moment for Naomi. And this... This is how she enters verse or chapter 3. This is how Naomi moves into chapter 3. So our lesson for chapter 2, kindness, hesed, reaps a harvest. It reaps a harvest when we move into hesed. So what was harvested here? Hope and restoration and a whole lot of barley. <laughs> So chapter 3, Ruth, Boaz at the threshing floor. So this is where it gets a little interesting, uh, a little controversial maybe. Let's read chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz with whose women you have worked is our relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there 
until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So first, let me show you what a threshing floor may have looked like. It would have looked very similar to this in a field, an open field, wide open area, anything but private. Workers would try to remove the husk from the kernels by threshing it by hand with their tools or by trampling with livestock going around the circle or crushed underneath a wheel of a cart. And Professor Hubbard makes note that the term winnowing that we just read was the festive, joyous climax of the harvest season. So there would have been many workers around here threshing, threshing their grain piles and celebrating their harvest. It would have been a heightened time in the community. So here's Naomi, right? She's coming off of chapter two. Here's Naomi. Her hope has been sparked. Now she's engaged and she's got a plan. So her plan is very unexpected, and it's very risky to put her daughter, a young widowed woman, in this precarious situation. Because certainly in this culture, to lie down at a man's feet in the middle of the night and to uncover his feet would have been considered a sexual advancement. So this is risky. What in the world is going on? So Naomi, she is banking. She is banking on the character and the kindness of Boaz here. And can I just state the big elephant in the room when I read this part is that this is kind of creepy, (laughs) okay? I mean, like stalker-level creepy. Um, So it's just like, what is going on here, Lord? Okay, so let's, let's continue reading. Let's see what happens. Verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Guardian redeemer, also known as a kinsman redeemer. So Ruth very much would have been aware of the risk involved, and this could either turn out really good for her or really bad. And she agrees to do it anyway. Again, she continues to lead through loyalty, through her relationship with Naomi. So it could have been because of the, the topic of conversation Ruth wanted to have with Boaz, that it needed to be private in order to preserve her character because it was very forward. And this festive winnowing event would have provided a situation where Boaz could have been alone at some point. He didn't go home at night. Rather, he would have slept out in a public field keeping watch over his harvest. So Naomi and Ruth see an opportunity at hand. 
And when Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, this is a cultural marriage proposal. Which, by the way, Naomi did not ask her to do this. This is all Ruth at this point, which would align with her character because she wants her motives to be clear. She wants her motives to be clear. She was not offering herself in that moment sexually. She wanted Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer and to marry her. She was clear. And here's how Boaz responds. Verse 10. May the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replies. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your garden redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back into town. So we all can take a deep breath (laughs) and relieve that Boaz does not take advantage of her. And he truly is a man of noble character and is captivated by Ruth just captivated by her kindness, and her dignity is kept intact. And he reveals, there is a wrench in the plan, I'm not the first in line to redeem you, but he says, I will settle it. And then, of course, he gives her more food, because this is the way this man continues to tell her, I really like you, I'm going to give you more food. But here's what's interesting about that food. He gives her an extra large measure of barley, six measures of barley would have been at least 50 pounds. Why in the world would he do that? Okay. So, and he places it on her back because it's 50 pounds of food and because it's morning time. He knows she has to leave the harvest field and go back through the bustling city gates And if she doesn't have grain on her back to show for it, what speculation would this noble character woman be under to show for it? Of what has she been doing all night? What has been going on? The greater sovereignty of God's kindness continues to shine bright through Boaz, who clearly loves her, provides for her, and protects her protects her. All right? So our takeaway from chapter three, embrace unexpected opportunities as kindness from the Lord, as kindness from God. Sometimes God is wanting to reveal to us his kindness, and it's coming through a very unexpected way, or maybe through an unexpected person. Can we stay open to receiving from him? 
okay? So now we head into chapter 4. So let me recap this first part. Boaz finds the first kinsman redeemer, and a long story short, the man decides not to redeem Naomi and her land or to marry Ruth, the Moabite, because it would not benefit his estate enough. It would cost him too much money. So culturally, it would have been acceptable for the first kinsman redeemer to pass on the opportunity. However, he was not operating from the ideal Jewish ethic of hesed. He was still looking out for his own interests. And this is what separates him from Boaz, because Boaz is willing to do it. And he doesn't waste any time. (laughs) So let's read in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a garden redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. So Ruth marrying Boaz and having a son together is the fulfillment of two prayers. Naomi from chapter 1 I want you to have children and release you to be with another husband. May the Lord give you that. And the prayer of Boaz, may the Lord richly reward you for your hesed. So this is the fulfillment of that. Ruth is being rewarded for her loyalty and for her kindness. Now what's interesting is now Ruth, at the end of the chapter here, is moving out of the limelight. And it's not about Ruth anymore. And Naomi is brought forward with honor. For the readers, for us to share in the joy of her fullness, the completion of her ampersand moment. The completion. Here she has her grief, her famine. Displaced home, one patriarch husband dies, two sons die. She's barren, no offspring, unanswered questions, and a deep emptiness. She is still holding that within her heart. And now she is holding hope with Ruth's loyalty. She has deep belonging. She has food in plenty. She has extraordinary hesed that's been offered to her, and she has been redeemed and she has legacy, she has fullness. The fullness and the hope is so beautiful because it is held side by side to her grief. And again, it shines bright, God's extraordinary kindness over all his people, over all his people. Amen? So the book ends with a genealogy. So out of the loyalty and kindness of Ruth and Boaz, the Lord responds by honoring them with his own everlasting hesed, 
by giving them a son, Obed, who will be the great-grandfather of King David, which extends on further to give us the greatest redeemer over all of us, which is our Savior, Jesus, comes from this family. So we end with this lesson from chapter 4. God honors loyalty with hesed. His kindness towards us is loyal, reliable, compassionate, and faithful. May we pass on to each other the kindness that he has given to us and to hold our hands out open towards hope if our pain is too great today. So to keep this as a reminder on our hearts today, the hospitality team will be offering an ampersand stamp as we leave today, just to keep it on our hearts for the rest of the day. Isn't this an incredible story? So rich. I want to close and speak a blessing over us this morning, but could the care teams come forward? And if you would like prayer today, please, please come forward at the end of the service. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.